This is Sticky Note Conversations with Erica Washington. Welcome, everybody, to um, our first live Sticky Note Conversations um, podcast conversation. And I'm so excited to be doing this here live on location at the Make It Work Nevada office um, with a room full of really dope black women and Derek. And we, uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation um, with Dr. Wendy Green. And so I'm going to do a really, really brief intro, but I really love for... Uh, Dr. Green to tell you who she is and so but I'll start with uh, she is the daughter of civil rights activists the professor is a trailblazing U.S. anti-discrimination law scholar teacher and advocate who has devoted her professional life's work to advancing racial color and gender equity in workplaces and beyond Uh, Professor Green is the first tenured African-American woman law professor at Drexel University, Thomas R. Klein School of Law, and the director of the Law School Center for Law Policy and Social Action. So welcome to Make It Work Nevada and Sticky Note Conversations. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for having me back in Nevada. (laughs) I got it right. In Nevada. Nevada. Exactly, exactly. So all of that that I just said is true, but for for the audience, who, who are you? Well, I am a daughter. I am a sister. I am an aunt or an auntie. Um, I'm a friend. I'm a soar to many. Um, and I'm also a global citizen. And as you mentioned before, I am an academic, a legal academic who has uh, pretty much devoted all of, I feel like all of my life at this point, um, not even just as an academic, just but just as a person um, who understood um, inequities and inequalities and discrimination in our society in, in large part because my parents taught me about these things and taught me how to address these things even as a child. So um, I think that, or not, not that I think, but I know that I was born to advocate and and activate on behalf of vulnerable populations, in particular on behalf of African descendants in the U.S. and around the world. Um, Some of you might be familiar with um, the Crown Act or the Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair Act, uh, which is not only state legislation but also municipal legislation and federal legislation that specifically addresses um, a form of grooming code discrimination or what I call grooming code discrimination. Um, and more specifically, race-based natural hair discrimination or discrimination on the basis of African descendants, natural hairstyles or hair texture like afros, braids, locks, and twists. And this particular legislation makes clear that discrimination on those grounds constitutes unlawful racial discrimination and violation of our Civil Rights Act. Um, I'm also um, a legal expert, not only for the legislation, but also for enforcement guidance um, and a legal expert for litigation. Unfortunately, we're still dealing with civil rights cases um, in educational spaces, in workspaces, in public accommodations, in prison, in the prison context where African descendants are being policed and disciplined and discriminated against and stigmatized 
on the basis of their natural hairstyles. And so um, I serve as a legal expert also in seminal civil rights litigation that's challenging this kind of discrimination as a form of race discrimination. And so in sum, I'll say that pretty much, um, and I know this sounds kind of odd because I think for most of us in this room probably already would assume that it is a form of racial discrimination in a systemic and longstanding form of uh, discrimination. We understand that as black women. Um, but unfortunately, the ways in which our laws have been interpreted, many federal courts in particular and other types of um, lawmakers have not treated it as such. And so this is why we're continuing to have to litigate and legislate, unfortunately, um, to even be able to exercise and enjoy what I believe is our human right just to be free and to freely be able to express ourselves and namely our racial and cultural identities. But in sum, basically um, any, for the most part, um, any key legislation or um, policy at this point that like enforcement guidance or the litigation um, or the civil rights legislation that actually declares that natural hair discrimination is racial discrimination has been informed by my legal scholarship, my legal publications, as well as my advocacy on this issue for now almost 20 years. So I want to ask um, and, and jump right into it. There is going to be a trial in Houston around a young man, a junior in high school who has not been in the classroom from what I understand since August, uh, whether in in-school suspension or somewhere outside of the school because of his hair. Mm -hmm. And he wears his hair in locks um, and they're saying that it's a length issue, not necessarily a lock issue. Tell me your thoughts on that, of it going to trial, and what do you think the outcome would be, especially because uh, Texas is one of the states where the Crown Act has been passed. Right. Well, I don't know if I can actually tell you what the outcome is going to be or well, even just project, what you, what you, or even project what you think. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's the thing about it. I really don't know what the state court judge might declare. Um, and try to give you some background, and I'll also kind of shape it a little bit too because um, I'm serving as a legal expert in a civil rights case that's in Texas um, again with the same school district the same high school you all might be familiar with DeAndre Arnold and Caden Bradford from 2020-2019 who were likewise told that they could not wear their locks because they violated the high school's grooming policy um, even though they wore their hair up or pinned up, but the way in which the grooming policy states is that male students cannot uh, wear a hair length that, ha well, let me go back, uh, touching their shoulders or their eyebrows. Um, now, none of the boys that are at issue here are wearing their locks in a way in which they're touching their shoulders or their eyebrows. They're all pinned up or braided up. But the way in which, obviously, the, the high school is enforcing this policy is that if, if ever let down, whether it's on campus or off campus, it, it has the propensity to touch your shoulders or your eyebrows, then you're in violation of this grooming policy. 
Because they're worried about if all of a sudden the wind blows or they <laughs> shake it. So well, I can't tell you what they're really worried about other than what has been reported. Recently, the, the school superintendent um, decided to take a full-page ad out in the Houston Chronicle where his um, wording or his belief is that um, it is essentially un-American not to conform. And um, this is an American value or principle is conformity and that these students should learn how to conform for the betterment of the community. Um, He also cites to the fact that in our branches of the military that there are strict uniforms and guidelines as it relates to grooming and that essentially the the students need to be in alignment. But that's changed over the years too, especially with women. Uh, and black women in the military? Absolutely. So since around 2013, 2014, we've seen a lot of movement. Um, It's been, you know, I say a lot of movement. It's it's been kind of like slow going, but nonetheless movement in terms of uh, changing or transforming the military grooming standards, namely as it relates to service women and even more specifically African-American service women uh, who were basically told by the different branches in their grooming policy that locks, braids, and twists and afros, you know, those hairstyles that we'll commonly wear, uh, were extreme and unkempt and essentially unprofessional and they would violate their grooming policy if they wore those but due to a lot of advocacy on the part of just really courageous service women um, as well as the courageous advocacy of black women in the congressional black caucus at that time under the leadership of marcia fudge and also um, congresswoman barbara lee um, we saw that these black women were advocating on behalf of these african-american service women and in particular telling the secretary at that time um, of defense that you know these these policies are discriminatory on the basis of race and sex and they're stigmatizing um, harmfully stigmatizing black women and they really don't have anything to do with their ability to to defend our country right to do what they are um, in the position to do which is to defend our com- our country and be of service to our country and so then Secretary Hagel um, decided to issue a call and, or a mandate to the various branches in the military to reform their policies. So now fast forward almost 10 years now, we're starting to see reformation. I'm not going to say it's complete freedom and liberation, but it is reformation as it relates to black women in particular and just more women more broadly who are able to rock their hair freely and freely wear their hair as they need to in many instances. Because you think about it, for many black women, especially those in the service or even beyond the service, if you live in what I call a hair desert, (laughs) where literally there is no one to do your hair, there is or there are no products in those spaces, Um, what do we often um, resort to, right? To natural or protective hairstyles or what it called protective hairstyles like locks or braids or twists or wearing our naturally curly hair, right? In order to maintain the healthiness of our hair and also in order for us to be in uniform, right? And so that's a part of, I think, to this point about miseducation, right? Right, or a lack of education. Um, or a lack of even an interest in really being educated about the diversity 
um, of our hair textures and the different kinds of ways in which we are wearing our hair and the different reasons for that, right? So, so in many instances, you would find, you know, service women who were um, having to, you know, especially if you were overseas, you would have to have someone send products, um, would be going to hair salons where they didn't have proper um, products or proper skill, skills and training to even do their hair. Um, you are going to experience a lot of those incidences, hair loss right? Um, sometimes permanent and temporary in nature. Um, and you can imagine what that does to your self-esteem, right? And then all of the things that you're trying to do in a, um, to, to rebuild that. And again, to be in, in, in uniform and code. So I say all that to say is that there has been some significant changes over the past 10 years. But as I mentioned, this has changed over time. Um, and there still needs to be more change as it relates to that. Um, as it relates to the student in, in Houston or this grooming policy in Houston, um, unfortunately, um, there, have, there has been opportunity for the high school and the school district to change it um, uh, because we do have a federal district court judge in the case involving Caden Bradford and DeAndre Arnold, who declared for the first time, to my knowledge, um, in legal, American legal history, that this kind of grooming policy that they're enforcing violates our constitutional rights to, to be free from sex discrimination because it's differentiating between male students and female students. Female students can wear you know, their hair touching their shoulders or having the propensity to touch their shoulders, their eyebrows, like bangs, right? right. Um, it also violates the, the student's constitutional right to be free from racial discrimination um, because there seems to be evidence, or at least the evidence was presented um, that as the boy's hair was growing, the, the policy was changing to restrict and police it, right? So then also in light of my testimony in that case, for the first time, we see a federal court actually declaring that the ways in which this grooming policy is trying to compel them to cut off their hair or to cover their hair infringes upon their First Amendment rights to their freedom to cultural expression. We're in this context where a federal court has already told this high school and this high school, this district, that the ways in which you're enforcing this grooming policy is viola violative of our constitutional rights or those students' constitutional rights, right? What is it? But they're continuing to, to enforce it. Yeah, in the and, same and way. I'm wondering where these rules come from in the sense of what this has to do with learning or how you're able to learn or how it's distracting to you know themselves or other students that they would even put this into a um, in, to write it down and make this a policy well frankly I don't think it has anything to do with those goals um, educational or ped pedagogical objectives and I'm saying that as a as a teacher <laughs> as an educator um, you know a lot of times these policies come about because they're copy and paste you know so many school districts have them workplaces have them and they don't really think very critically about um, you know the implications or the consequences of these policies but I think it has become very clear through um, Daryl George's um, incident as well as DeAndre Arnold and Caden Bradford's among other students so many students that are experiencing this is that it actually does the exact opposite it's disruptive to their learning mm -hmm. and what I believe is their human right to a public education 
um, to be free from this kind of policing and stig stigmatization and harassment. Um, these kids are going, it's heartbreaking really that they are being taken out of the classroom and being isolated, uh, being segregated in the 21st century. Um, on the basis of a characteristic that is very much fundamentally associated with their cultural and racial identity and has nothing to do with their ability to, ability to learn or other students' ability to learn. Um, I think I probably shouldn't say too much because I'm the expert. So <laughs> and I'm going to have to be on the stand soon because this case, too, is going to go to trial. Mm -hmm. So, and, so and, and but I want to bring up the fact that I know that in Detroit there are some schools I don't know if it's considered a completely private school or if it uh, might be a charter, but there's a school that's an all-boys school, and at one point they also had a similar sort of grooming law and or policy on the books, but this was a school for black children mm -hmm. and run by black people who still also mm -hmm. said you can't have locks, you know, and, you know, you can't do certain things. And so, you know, it's not just a, uh, a issue as far as, you know, you know, white folks say mm -hmm. black folks can't do it. You have black folks say, no, you shouldn't do it either. And so that makes me think about respectability politics and, and what we're trying to ingrain in our children. And I think back to when I was a child and, you know, my grandma would straighten my hair mm -hmm. and what have you with the hot comb on the stove, like mm -hmm. most other folks. And, and that's what was pretty, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and then when I got to a certain age, you know, I got a relaxer because that's what you're supposed to do. And, you know, their nappy was bad and, you know, straight is good. Mm -hmm. And so we've come away from that some, some with the natural hair movement, but there still seems to be a, a weight on our community of saying that this is okay. This is only okay. Like in the outside, if you're going on vacation, that's vacation hair braids you know natural curls that's your vacation hair that's not your office hair and so and you still have children being in this being ingrained in children right now and so how do we remove ourselves from this this weight of this respectability politics that are are the way it comes out of our head is just not okay i don't you know it's just going to take time you were talking about centuries long kind of uh programming right um that it's going to take you know I, I hope it doesn't take centuries to deconstruct this mm -hmm. and to to ultimately destigmatize right uh, natural hairstyles because of their association with blackness that's really what it boils down to right um and so what i say oftentimes with any form of discrimination but in particular as it relates to this form of discrimination is equal opportunity discrimination uh, you know, we engage in it as well um, as black people, as African descended people, um, sometimes not again thinking very critically about the ways in which we're engaging in that discrimination and the harms of it. Um, and something that you just mentioned, you know, I experienced that as well. I remember one of my family members who pretty much any time when I was growing up, the time that she would tell me that my hair was pretty was when it was like bone straight. Mm -hmm. So I thought I looked I thought I looked exceptionally cute in my braids with my beads or my afro puffs and things of that nature, right? Um, and I liked my straight hair too, don't get me wrong, but um, I liked it all. And so I didn't necessarily see 
that I looked cuter or, or prettier or any of those types of things based upon my hair texture, but this person definitely communicated that to me. But I recognized that that was so deeply ingrained in her because she was dealing within, or at least whether actually or perceived that she was dealing with discrimination not only on the basis of her hair texture because it was a, a curlier hair texture than her siblings but also on the basis of her skin complexion right so dealing with colorism as well and so was not a very conscious thing right as it relates to the the the, the, the messaging to a young child that being said you know within the african descent community throughout the world um, this is this is something that we see everywhere. I mean, it's not just the United States. You talk about good and bad hair. If you're in, uh, you know, Spanish-speaking countries, you have pelo bueno and pelo malo, right? It's bad hair and good hair. Um, in Portuguese-speaking countries, you have, you know, cabelo ruin, which is bad hair. Um, and all of it is because of this association with blackness and um, this negative association with blackness and with straight hair being good because of its um, positive association oftentimes with whiteness or Eurocentrism and sometimes indigeneity too, right? Um, so, you know, it's this has been going on since, you know, the era of racial slavery and continued through eras of racial apartheid. And I would say even today, we're still dealing with racial apartheid. What's going on in Texas, to me, I would describe that as still as racial apartheid or racial segregation um, that is being enforced by uh, this high school and this school district and being defended mm -hmm. um, very publicly and, and vigorously, actually. Uh, but even throughout the African descended community around the world, I say all the time, before we even get out of our mother's womb, before we even enter the world, people are already speculating about the texture of our hair, right? And why is that? Um, and I know why. I mean, I just point that question, so many reasons why, right? Like, what's the baby's hair gonna look like? You know, also trying to um, encourage partnerships with between their, their, their daughters and their sons with certain individuals who have particular hair textures. So hopefully we the baby's hair, that. yeah, <laughs> the, hopefully the baby's hair it comes out a little straighter or with a looser curl. Um, I mean, you know, think about how much uh, slack Beyonce got oh, with, um, with her baby with, yeah. with, with Blue's hair when, when she was younger. Mm -hmm. I mean, people were awful online mm -hmm. and I don't expect that, you know, Beyonce saw all of those things but she saw enough of it because she's made comments about it in songs and what have you but people um find it okay to have the Absolutely. conversation about a child's hair correct people have a lot of license or feel that they have a lot of mm -hmm. license right you know or even i mean and we may say these things again unconsciously sometimes we say it think jokingly because that's so much a part of our um um, our dialogue and exchange with one another like for example you know I remember my dad I know he was joking but he, you know if I like kind of like woke up with I remember when I was um, when I was uh, growing my my relaxer out and I was going back natural and you know I would just wake up and it was just you know curls and he's like what are you gonna do with your hair you gonna, you gonna fix your hair mm -hmm. you know and I'm like it's it's done you know, this is just like, it's done. 
And, you know, I know he was joking, and I didn't take it, you know, but I can understand and appreciate it, but I was at a different point in my life, too, you know? No, I had the same yeah. conversation with as my an adult. Yeah, as an adult, I had a very different, at this point, like, I don't really care what you think and what you say mm-hmm. um, about my hair, and um, this but is some what folks I'm do, do internalize that. Correct, correct. And so that, too, when we say, when we talk about, like, how are we going to change the rule, it's going to take a lot of work. Um, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of trauma as it relates to our hair. Um, and um, it's going to take some real, you know, healing. Mm-hmm. And healing over time, I think, the you know, obviously the legislation is an important tool in that because it is helping not only the legislation but litigation and just more public awareness mm-hmm. around this issue and at times um, is helping towards that end, especially I see you know, children, um, you know, all across the country who are just really feeling so empowered by the legislation about um, the legislative movement, about hearing about litigation and people who are advocating on their behalf, um, feeling very empowered to rock their curls and their braids and their twists. And, um, and that's becoming, you know, a very, you know, just a very natural part of their um, expression in ways in which I would say when I was growing up was not the case, right? So I do think that, and not only that, but also you have social media, you have um, greater levels of representation of your diversity. There are more products. There more products. I feel like as, you know, somebody who's had, you know, natural hair for a lot of years now, I haven't had a relaxer, I can't remember, probably early 2000s maybe, um, I just would go and just buy any conditioner mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. what have you but there are so many options now that there weren't available that people can actually mm-hmm. and then i don't think anybody was talking about like the difference between like a 4c a 4b or 3b right. or what have you at least i didn't know anything about that and trying to figure mm-hmm. out what works best mm-hmm. for my hair so there's mm-hmm. a lot of um uh well certainly capitalism has has uh played a huge role has played a huge role <laughs> in, in, us in being hair technology to be, to yeah. be, to, yeah. in order to be natural yeah no there's so many different you know factors and all of this and variables in terms of what is helping i think to shape a more positive image so many different campaigns um not only in the united states but again globally that's really trying to celebrate and affirm natural hair um or like in the uk afro hair and um so there's just a you know a lot of positive movement and i and i know social media has played a really huge part including if you think about it like with the youtube videos that people look at or just these reels that are on instagram and i look at them all the time uh to see how to do your hair because that's another thing for many black women we can go through our whole life not ever really knowing our own hair mm-hmm. and like how impactful is that that you can go your whole life without ever knowing the different textures of your hair how to manage your hair texture because you've not had the opportunity to or you have been discouraged from actually doing so right or for example you know i know for me having to get my hair pressed or get a relaxer and it wasn't my choice you know that was the choice of my my mother and my hairstylist at the time i didn't even know the day that i was getting a relaxer that i was getting a relaxer and i suspect that's an experience that so many black women have experienced right so you know we're getting we're, we're relearning right and learning something so fun such a, a fundamental part of ourselves 
um, in, I think, some really transformative ways. So I say all that to say it's, it's going to take time. It's going to take time. But I do feel encouraged, especially by um, this younger generation. And I just also want to say is that in this work, I'm not trying to uh, say that I'm, you know, discouraging anyone from wearing their hair straight or or any of that. My whole mission is about free the hair. You know, wear it how you so choose and how you want to 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 rock it, whether it's straight, curly, locked, braided, twisted, not it, whatever you want to do, you should have, um, not only do we have that right, but it should be protected and respected. So let me ask you about that. How, how did you come to uh, start having the conversation about free the hair and wanting to write policy around it? Did that come from a particular conversation or something that may have happened with you? Well, I've always, I will tell you, my first job was as a, um, when I was in high school, was as a receptionist at a hair salon. So I've just been fascinated, mm -hmm. you know, with hair, period. And I just happened to fall into, you know, serving as a receptionist. And I would look at hair all day on Saturdays. And um, so I've been fascinated with uh, with hair. Um, though I can't really do my own hair, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but I've been fascinated with it. Um, I try. Um, and, you know, what I will say in terms of the policy um, around it is that I learned pretty early on, I was fascinated with the concept of race. Mm -hmm. I, and in particular, uh, why did I see growing up or through history lessons and when my parents talked to me about Jim Crow and their advocacy trying to challenge and dismantle it um, as college students and even beyond, I really was questioning why did it appear that out of all the people that black people were the target of, um, you know, these really systemic forms of racial discrimination and stigmatization. So that's one part. Mm -hmm. So in that, um, you know, what is race? How do we develop this concept and this construct and, the, and, this, and it's so powerful, right? And so part of that is not just about our ancestry or our known ancestry, but a, part, a big part of that is, you know, these observable characteristics like our skin complexion, our language, our accent, our clothing, um, our hair, right? Um, and then so I go to Xavier University in, in New Orleans and I was an English major at African American Studies and Spanish um, double minor and a lot of my work um, scholarship at that time in my research and writing was around racial classifications and you see for centuries a huge part about classifying us or individuals on the basis of race, hair texture is a very critical part right, in terms of distinguishing us on the basis of this concept of race. Okay, so then I go to law school in New Orleans at Tulane, and I come across these cases involving African-descendant women in particular, um, who were being told by their employers that, um, if, that they could not wear natural hairstyles, like locks and braids, and um, afros in particular, this is like in the early to mid-1970s. And I see how federal courts were deciding these cases, and namely they would challenge this kind of discrimination as a form of race discrimination um, in violation of Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which prohibits racial discrimination, among other forms of discrimination, um, in workplaces. So they would challenge you know, this discrimination on the basis of their afros and their braids as a form of racial discrimination. Well, makes sense to me, 
right? But the federal courts weren't thinking that made sense. And they declared what I call, or created what I call a hair splitting legal distinction, which is if you're discriminated against on the basis of an Afro, then that constitutes unlawful racial discrimination in violation of our federal civil rights laws. But if you log braid or twist that Afro and you're discriminated against, that's not race discrimination. It does not violate Title VII that prohibits racial discrimination in workplaces and employers are free to discriminate this on those grounds. Because you manipulated the hair after. The idea is that because race is something that is immutable or unchangeable. And if it's a characteristic that can be changed, then that's not a racial characteristic. So yes, if you changed it, you voluntarily changed it, um, that characteristic, then it wouldn't um, be considered a racial characteristic and that discrimination on that gr those grounds would not violate our federal civil rights laws. That made no sense to me, right? And that, again, uh, emboldened me, <laughs> it frustrated me. And that's when I endeavored to try to figure out a way to not only write about it, but uh, provide, um, you know, a blueprint, essentially, on how we could close this gap in civil rights protection, right? It doesn't make any sense that a black woman, one day, if she shows up to work in a, with an Afro, and then the next, if she's protected if she's discriminated against, but the next day, if she decides to lock or braid or twist her Afro and is discriminated against, she has no relief. The employer is free to regulate and harass her and discriminate against her on those grounds. It makes no sense to me. And it makes no sense to me when I know that hair texture, locks and braids and twists, afros, other types of natural hairstyles that we commonly wear um, and have been associated with our racial identity historically and even contemporarily have, have always served as a basis for discrimination, in particular racial discrimination. So that's, I know a long story, but just to kind of give you some context in terms of why this legislation is important and why this litigation is important and why these policies are important because we've had federal courts um, since 1981 who have said that, the, that you know, various forms of discrimination on the basis of our natural hairstyles don't amount to racial discrimination. So in the work, what I do is I put forth the definition of race that states that you know characteristics that are historically and commonly and contemporarily associated with race all of these things are associated with race right even though they're changeable right or mutable they've all been associated with race mm -hmm. and if it if you're being discriminated against on those grounds it should be treated as racial discrimination so that definition i put forth in an article um, back in 2008 called title seven what's hair and other race-based characteristics got to do with it. Um, and then from there, I just kept writing about hair and about various forms of racial discrimination on the basis of racial and gender discrimination, color discrimination on those grounds, and pretty much have um, created not only the uh, legal blueprint for legislation, but also litigation and enforcement guidance by our human um, and civil rights agencies across the country. Um, including the New York City Commission on Human Rights, including Nevada's own uh, NERC, 
um, and, and, and also in other countries. So really, um, I say all that to say is that, yes, it is personal to me, obviously, as a black woman, um, as um, a person who has um, experienced you know, discrimination on those grounds and biases on these grounds, but also recognizing um, the injustice of this, um, these legal decisions and how it maintains racial inequality and a very systemic form of racial inequality that has real harms and consequences. Not only are we losing our jobs, right? And obviously we're losing educational opportunities or being deprived of them. Or promotions, you know, that's economic security right there, right? I mean, also, I think about women running for office. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you will hardly ever see a woman running for office wearing locks. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not unheard of, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not common practice. And I feel like just in the past maybe decades that you're even seeing them wear braids on a regular basis. And then you take Ayanna Presley um, as an example of you know, freeing herself of, of what hair struggles she was having and decided, you know, I can just show my bald head and you all just have to be okay with it. But that came with a lot of chatter, mm -hmm. a lot of chatter, not chatter about what she's working on, not chatter about her, her qualifications, but on what's going on with her head. Right, absolutely. I mean, we had former First Lady Michelle Obama say the same thing, right? The reason why she maintained a straight hairstyle throughout you know, President Obama's um, tenure was because, you know, she wanted people to not be distracted, you know, the voters in particular, right? And though it's be distracted by her hair. Um, but even when she was still straightening it, they were still distracted, right? <laughs> because what do we see on the cover, cover of New York Magazine? Mm -hmm. She's rocking a big afro, right? As if she's a member of the, you know, Black Panther Party or something like that. You know, describing, you know, basically implying that she's militant, right, and radical. All the things, you know, in a negative way, right? Um, so I think that's an important point as I think about it because it's like no matter how much we try to contort and conform, you know, um, it's still not going to immunize us from... Yeah, from yeah. Well, it's and that's the thing be, about yeah. the conformity that you mentioned with um, in Texas mm -hmm. and wanting them saying that they need to be able to conform into the American way or what have you, and wondering if that's you know the overall goal is to say you know you can't look like how you want to look. You have to look like how we want you to look, and there's there's no room for any sort of other interpretation of what that is mm -hmm. and, and what an American is or what American looks like. Well, one could say <laughs> that a, that could be, I don't know if it's even code word, to be honest with you. Yeah. It's like erasing your blackness, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because again, their understanding, they, they've been educated, and I can sit here and attest to that because I've educated <laughs> this particular school district as a legal expert in the other case on this very issue. That's what I'm there for, is actually just for this one issue is to demonstrate how uh, their locks are linked or associated with their racial and cultural identities as black people. So they've been educated on this ground. Um, and so to that point, if you understand and appreciate and respect just that fact, not only just for those students, but for so many African descendants, um, if you respect that fact, then you understand that this is very much a fundamental part 
or an expression of our fundamental expression of our racial identity as black people. So therefore, if you're telling us that, um, you know, your expression is un-American, mm-hmm. one can... Or making oh, us choose, Professor Green, from our, between our education versus how we freely show up in spaces. Sure. No other students are having to make that choice. If you dye your hair blonde or if you dye your hair or do it, or get a perm or whatever you want to do, no other student's being made to choose between my education or how I express mm-hmm. myself or mm-hmm. what, how I show up. Absolutely. I don't think there's chatter about anybody else's hair as much as our hair or any connotation around what it means. Like you mentioned, Afro might mean that you're some sort of revolutionary or if you have locks, maybe you're a Rastafarian and and you smoke a lot of weed Mm -hmm. or, you know, there's just always something around different things. If you're wearing braids, again, you're going on vacation, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever you do. Right. Well, I will say to that point, like, This kind of actually links very, I think, closely to um, instances with indigenous peoples, right? Where, um, you know, many will wear their hair long or in braids, um, you know, as an expression of their cultural identity. And if we put it in, you know, broader historical context, you know, their hair was shorn, right? Um, As a way to force them to assimilate into individuals' ideas of what is an American, right? Um, and really, they were saying to them that by wearing your hair in braids, you're unassimilable, right? You're foreign. You're outside of the construct of what it is to be an American. And fast forward, that's essentially what's being communicated to these um, students, black male students in particular who are wearing locks, that you're foreign by not conforming you're foreign by not you're not american basically i think that sense of really uh, it's just demoralizing um you cannot fully participate in this environment you can't compete you gotta cut your locks off for a wrestling match or you cannot fully be in in school or participate or you're sent to the principal's office because your hair is distracting you fully cannot compete and get an education that everybody else is otherwise entitled to because of how your hair is. And, and historically with the indigenous people in this country, not only were they forced not to wear braids, but they they cut their hair off. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, they were in boarding school, so when they went back home, that was another piece of them that was separated mm-hmm. from their culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, okay, you cut your hair, you can't wear your clothes, you can't speak your language, mm-hmm. you can't be who you are. Mm-hmm. So coming back to Black people, um, black women in particular, it's like, like she said, erasing every part of us that connects us to our heritage so that then like, we don't exist mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. those parts of us that make us who we are have been outlawed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how lost are we if we don't have a connection to these fundamental parts of who we are? And even to the and you make an excellent point, and this was actually a part of my of expert testimony um, and report for the case, was about the fact that during in the context of slavery, in the context of racial slavery, um, that uh, it, 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 alongside branding and cutting off, I don't even want to get into the violent things that happened, right? But you know what I'm going, yeah. A, a huge part and a very central part um, of this process was shaving our hair, shaving off our hair. Um, 
to the exact point that you're making is to try to disconnect us from, you know, our identity because they understood overseers and slave owners and others enforcers of this just brutal system understood that that represented, you know, our tribal affiliations, our religious identities, sometimes signals of our status and our class um, and our communities, right? We, we could know who we were by virtue of our hair textures and they, they, they didn't want that, right? And so if you're ever being forced to cut off your hair, it's one thing if you voluntarily do it, right. but if you're being forced to do it, that is really, de it's dehumanization, it's dehumanizing and demoralizing. And, and that's basically what I articulated um, in my expert report and in my testimony in the case against that same high school and um, uh, school district. So that gets to the earlier point, they've been educated on this issue and the impact um, and also the linkages between what is going on in 21st century to what has been happening to us. To segregation. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, um, so people can understand. Uh, you said you started around in early, like 2008, when you wrote this mm -hmm. article, and then so, how does it then go from you having this conversation um, um, in this article to it becoming something that becomes language in policy in law? That's a really good question. How does it become? Sometimes you don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is you a thing don't right even there. know how it happens um, because sometimes you don't know who's reading your work. Mm -hmm. I put it out there so everybody can read it, we and I tried it. to. Right. Yeah, well, that's what, true. In Nevada, what state, what state was so first? the first one was California. California. So, okay. um, California was the first one, but yes, in Nevada, I got a call. Mm -hmm. um, in California, I got a call um, as well. Um, and how that happens, that's really interesting. So there in California, we had um, former California State Senator Holly Mitchell who introduced the first Crown Act. Um, and what I will say about the Crown Act, a lot of people may not fully understand, is that in this legislation, it has a definition of race. Okay, so we're, we're, we're clarifying for the purposes of our civil rights protections that prohibit racial discrimination. Many of our civil rights statutes don't have definitions of these protected statuses like race mm -hmm. or religion or color, national and that was origin. Important. Why? It's important because, as I mentioned before, we had courts that weren't, view they were viewing race in a very narrow way to the point that only discrimination on the basis of an Afro. Constitutes race constitutes racial discrimination. Right. Well, then that means there are all these other forms of discrimination that are racial in nature that are not being addressed, addressed right? And you don't have a remedy for it. Um, so that's why it's really important. We're leaving this um, very important duty or charge to judges and other lawmakers um, who are not really fully appreciating or kind of ignoring, you know, all these other forms of racial discrimination based upon like changeable characteristics, even like our names, right? We know that there is systemic discrimination on the basis of names that are black sounding or Afrocentric versus white sounding. There's plenty of research on that. Well, pursuant to this doctrine that I was just talking about or this line of reasoning, if you were discriminated against on the basis of a black sounding name, then you might very well not have a viable claim of race discrimination under our 
federal civil rights laws in particular, and and maybe possibly in other states that were following you know this line of reasoning. So that's why it's really important. We don't have a definition, so we're leaving it up to folks to decide these things, the scope of our um, civil rights protections on the basis of how they perceive race. And so that's why I offered that definition in my 2008 article. And then fast forward to 2018, uh, we see the California Crown Act uh, being introduced by then um, State Senator Holly Mitchell. And um, an iteration or part of my definition of race is in this legislation. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I will, you know, and so again, change over time, right? Mm -hmm. It takes 2008 to 2018 for this to happen. But to be clear, the cases go all the way back, you know, to, you know, in terms of when we start seeing civil rights protections against racial discrimination starting in like the late 50s, 60s, obviously 64 Civil Rights Act. Um, so that tells you something too, in terms of the point we actually have protection against racial discrimination in this country mm -hmm. through civil rights legislation. It is taking what almost 70 years for this form of discrimination that we know is racial discrimination to be treated as such under our civil rights laws. And, and so right now in the Crown Act is law in Alaska, Arizona. Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Illinois, Louisiana, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Minnesota, Nebraska, Nevada, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oregon, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, and Washington. Mm -hmm. So what is next? Well, I'm happy to say that I've helped pretty much all, almost like half of those mm -hmm. states Nevada. Um, and Nevada is included. Mm -hmm. um, and there are also municipalities, mm -hmm. um, too, that are adopting either the same or similar types of uh, legislation as ordinances. Um, I've been working on personally, I've been working on uh, Kansas. Um, there have been two cities in Kansas. Um, Wichita and Lawrence County, I believe. Oh, that's true. Yes. London, UK. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I can tell you what's next for me, but I, you know, in terms of what's going to happen across the state, well, that's going to be ask, challenging. Well, let me ask you this: uh, it's it's gone through twice on the House of Representatives mm -hmm. side for uh, federal policy, but it hasn't made it to the other side. Um, any insight as to why or how we move that needle so that uh, we actually have this federal uh, protection across the country? Yeah, is there a particular argument that they're making right now? That? Or are they just not hearing it? Well, yeah, so there's a voting thing. and But for some people, um, it was it has been they, they already just think that it's covered under federal civil rights civil rights um laws and so they think it's like duplicative duplicative right um like it's unnecessary because they think it's already covered um you know it, it, oftentimes you will get folks who will be um sort of against it because again it goes back to like employer prerogative is too much of an intrusion upon employers um rights um and their authority to to regulate or tell you how to wear your hair and all those other things 
There are some people who just think that this is not a real serious issue at all, that uh, we're kind of just making it up. Like there really is no racial discrimination on the basis of our natural hairstyles. Um, so there are a lot of different arguments as it relates to why some people might be opposed to it or be resistant to it, right? Um, but, you know, but hopefully um, over, you know, through more conversation with um, legislators um, and educating them about this issue and its harms. Um, again, like I said before, it's not that we're just simply, and that's not to say that's a simple, but losing our jobs, educational opportunities, housing opportunities, um, access to public accommodations. People have been denied access to restaurants and bars and lounges when they're wearing natural hairstyles. Um, they're being segregated in the prison context on the basis of their natural hairstyles. So many different things, but you even think about it in the context of black women who may feel pressure or, uh, or pressure or an expectation to wear straightened hair. So many of us are experiencing um, hair loss at really tragic rates, permanent and temporary. We now have, can't, well, I was going to say research that, you know, solidifies something that I think many of us had already known or sort of speculated around um, about the, the, the higher probability or likelihood of developing um, uterine cancer, uterine fibroids, other forms of aggressive cancers with just simple, regular use, not excessive use of chemical relaxers over time, right? Because of the chemicals or the ingredients that are in those relaxers. So, um, you know, you have those types of things. You have people who will, you know, if we get our hair straightened um, and we're trying to maintain our, our straightened hairstyle, we don't move. We may not exercise. Right. We sit still. <laughs> we're not going to sweat it out. We're not going to sweat out. We're not going to yes. do that, right? And that starts at an early age too. I yes. remember having to sit real pretty, right. you know, for a couple for like a couple of days after right. Easter, uh, because right. So we're so imagine. So and not even have to imagine, but you know, if you're not moving, you're not engaging in physical activity. That also has linkages, right, yeah. to really serious. Um, health conditions, right? Um, so when I've talked about this issue even more recently before like the United Nations um, in Switzerland, I'm saying this is, this is a matter of life and death. You know, this is not just something about mere aesthetics, mm -hmm. as so many people try to describe it. It's like we're literally not only losing potentially our livelihoods, but in so many instances, we may be risking our lives. Right. Um, in light of trying to navigate and prevent or respond to again or or conform, or it's like all responding to right these different types of pressures and the, the the real possibility of being discriminated against in so many different aspects of our lives. Right. Whether it's professionally or personally. Um, or just throughout broader society, right? So why does this matter? And so that's a huge part of, for me, the advocacy, when you talk about what's next, this is like continuing to advocate and educate and agitate, um, really, uh, and, and really um, increase 
more public awareness around not only the discrimination, but also the harms and what I call the invisible harms of this discrimination. And as I say all the time, especially as it relates to black women, I say, well, if you care about our health, then you have to care about our hair. And, um, and it's unfortunate that you have to bring up these really um, sobering research studies about the fact that we're losing our hair, um, that we might be losing our lives, um, our reproductive capacities, um, the emotional distress, right, that goes along with it, that financial stress that goes along with all of the things that I'm talking about, um, that impacts our economic security in ways in which, you know, people don't really fully appreciate um, and, and sometimes simply, unfortunately, just ignore, right? So, um, yeah, so that's what I, I'm doing. And, um, and what's next is um, I've been helping to advance legislation um, in France. Um, you know, they're trying to free the hair over in France. And, um, and they have introduced for the first time a bill that's not like, you know, expressly like the Crown Act, but it um, makes clear that discrimination on the basis of hair texture and hairstyle and hair color violates their respective uh, human rights laws. And that bill was introduced by a French parliamentarian from Guadeloupe. And so I was just there in November helping to advance that legislation. And if it's passed, and we hope so, it will be the first piece of legislation, to my knowledge, um, that would be passed on a nationwide level, a national bill. So they might, France might beat the United States. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I so I just have to put out some little healthy competition. But yeah, so that's that. So and also working on some things in the UK as well. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation um, and you taking the time to fly all the way into Las Vegas and to talk with us in person about this important issue. And, and something you said, if you care about our health, then you have to care about our, our hair, that it's not a, a fluffy issue, that this is really important. Um, it's a really important conversation to think about now and into the future as we think about our democracy and, and how uh, when voting coming up and how we're thinking about that and who actually is checking for us. These are all things we have to think about, even though we have passed uh, the Crown Act in Nevada, there is still space mm -hmm. and room for a federal conversation, but also a space and room in just conversations in our schools and in our uh, professional areas and just how we think about um, think about how we are seen and perceived by mm -hmm. other people. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say thank you for coming all the way out here. And uh, I really enjoyed having this conversation with you. And I could have actually a bunch more questions to ask you, but we'll have to do a part two sure. at some point. <laughs> and uh, yay, thank you thank for you. joining us for thank our first you. live Sticky Note conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sticky Note Conversations with Erica Washington. Hosted and executively produced by Erica Washington, with music, mixing, and editing by Black Gypsy LLC. Special thanks to KUNV 91.5 in Las Vegas. This show is powered by Make It Work Nevada, a project of Tides Advocacy.